0: Well, I've got a secret to share with you today. Oh, you want to hear it now? <laughs> well, sorry, you're going to have to wait. I'm going to fill you in on this potentially life changing secret in a little bit from now. But now that I've got your attention, let me ask you this question. And really think about your answer, okay? What would it take for you to be content in life? What would have to happen in order for you to be happy with where you're at? Maybe the, in order to figure this out, you may need to ask, where am I currently discontent? Right? Where, what things am I unhappy about in my life right now? Now there are a a huge possible variety of answers to these questions. Maybe you would identify some financial threshold and you'd say, I'd be happy when I make that much money a year or have that much in my bank account or when my investments pay off. Maybe you're a student and so you're not thinking on those levels yet. You'd just be happy to be out of debt or be broke. Maybe you don't think financially. Maybe you'd think that you'll be happy when you start dating. Or when you get married. Or when you have a kid. Or two. Or three to call your own. If you are a kid here, maybe you'd be happy with more friends. Or more time on your parents' iPad. Adults. Maybe you are just content with your current position at work. So uh, a promotion or a change of scenery would make you happy. Or maybe you'd be content simply having work, being employed. Maybe you think, I won't be content until my next vacation, or until I've graduated from school, or until I've retired from work. Maybe you've got your eye on a, a slightly bigger house or a slightly faster phone. What would it take for you to be content? The list could be endless. Now, what we usually mean by contentment is is being satisfied or happy with what we have, right? That's what I mean by contentment, being satisfied or happy with what we have. And the only way that we can imagine getting there is to get to a level of living where we don't feel the need, the constant need or desire for more. So I won't be, I won't need to be discontent anymore because I'll have everything I need. I'll have everything I want. Now, it may well be your goal to be content. But you can't be content until... Fill in the blank. I'm sorry for bursting your bubble this morning, but that will never happen. will never happen. You will never become content simply by attaining what you think you want. The desire for more More, more is really insatiable. It is hard-coded into our hearts. If you get what you want, there will always be a next thing or a better thing, guaranteed. You may not believe me until you get there, but I promise you, attaining your wildest dreams will still ultimately prove unsatisfying. The cure for discontentment. The secret to contentment is never simply getting more. But you do want to be satisfied and happy in life, don't you? The Bible's concept of happiness is different than our general concept of, ha- of contentment, sorry of contentment. The Bible's concept is not really being satisfied with what you have, but instead being satisfied with regardless of what you have. That's the biblical definition of contentment. And that definition changes everything. Because if you're trying to be satisfied with what you have, you'll still always need certain things to make you happy. And if you don't have them, you won't be happy. But if you're satisfied regardless of what you have, it doesn't matter what you have or don't have you're already happy. And believe it or not, you can have that kind of contentment even today. There is no magic formula for this, but you could say there's a secret recipe. And you can get in on this secret today. You can learn it, and you can grow in it. To see this with me, if you would, open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, if you're taking one of the Bibles from in front of you, or maybe on the shelves in the library, it's on page 982. Philippians 4. We're nearly finished our summer-long trek through the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, the Philippian church, which has taught us how to live gospel-shaped, Christ-centered lives until he returns. Before we jump back in, though, to the text together... I invite you as well to stop pause quiet our hearts and pray for the spirit's help to speak to us would you pray with me heavenly father as we look in your word today as we study what you have to say to us i pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts may we hear what you have to say may we be willing to listen ready to listen and ready to obey. I pray that as we see you, as we sing, as we see you, may we find the strength to face today and tomorrow and every day that we come across. We need your help. We need your grace. So we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you weren't with us last week, what we saw last week was Paul bluntly tell the Philippians how to think and what to do in their lives. If you look with me in verse eight, Philippians 4, verse 8, he says this, Finally, lastly, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise... Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Today we're going to see Paul wrap up his letter, begin to wrap up his letter as a whole with some very personal notes to people he knew in, in Philippi. In verse ten it says this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The term that, that Paul uses there for concern for me a couple times literally means to think on behalf of me. So Paul is like, speaking of thinking about things, thanks for thinking about me. Now, you, don't, you might be hearing, you might have no idea who this guy Paul was. And so just to fill you in, Paul was a leader in the early Christian church. He'd once been a rabidly zealous Jewish teacher, but had been radically converted. And Paul spent the rest of his life as a missionary slash church planter, traveling the world and effectively spreading the gospel all over the known world. But in order to do that kind of missionary work, Paul was dependent on other people's support of him. Just like most missionaries today. He needed people to partner with him so he could keep doing the work. Because, believe it or not, missions was not the most lucrative career choice. And the Philippian church, who he had helped, which he had helped start, had become one of his most faithful partners over the years. But apparently, there ended up being a period of time when they hadn't supported him. They didn't support him. It says, "I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me." But don't go thinking, "Why, those lousy, good-for-nothing Philippians? What are they? What, what are they thinking? Not supporting their friend and founder?" No, Paul never doubted their love or care for him says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me. But you had no opportunity. So, some unnamed external factors had prevented them from sending any support to Paul. But now, he says, their concern has been revived. Which means to come into fresh bloom. Now, uh, this spring... Uh, A few months ago, my wife and I bought some nice hanging flower baskets for our backyard. And whenever we remembered to water them, they did really well. They flourished. Unfortunately, there were also times we totally forgot to water them. And given this summer, you know what would happen there. So there were times that they just withered and died, it seemed. However, when we would resume watering them, there must have been miracle flowers because they just... Grew right back. <laughs> bloomed all over the place once more. Paul was essentially saying that this is what happened with the Philippians. Okay? They, it was like their concern for him had dried up. But now, God had restored their opportunities. It's like he had watered them. And now their support had bloomed back to life. And I rejoice, he says... I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. It's kind of like Paul's writing a thank you note here, except that he never actually says thank you. Some scholars call this passage actually Paul's thankless thanks. I'm not joking. But I think there's a reason for this, why he doesn't actually explicitly say thank you. It's because Paul doesn't want his gratitude to be misunderstood. Paul wasn't trying to manipulate them. He wasn't trying to grovel to them, to beg for anything, angle for anything from them. In that day, if you really were explicitly thankful, it meant often you're asking for more. Paul didn't want to do that. Instead, Paul simply wanted to offer his life as an example again, as a case study. And this time, the case study is in contentment. After all, he just said in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Then he goes, verse 11, Not that I am speaking about of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul's not being ungrateful. He's being exemplary. Saying, I've learned this. And you can learn it too. What did he learn? He learned the, uh, how to be content in all situations. Here's this first point. There is a secret to contentment in all circumstances. Okay? There is a secret to being content in any and all circumstances that life may put us in. Look how Paul says this. the Philippians, I don't need anything right now. So don't feel pressured or obligated to give anything more to me. But notice, okay, why didn't Paul need anything? Why didn't Paul need anything here? It wasn't because all his needs had been met. It was because he had learned to be content regardless of what needs were met. Again, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, think just for a minute. Think of the way our, our culture fights against this. How our, uh, the materialism, the rampant, it's just, it tries to ingrain discontentment and ingratitude at us, in us at every turn. Just about every advertisement you see, whether on TV, Online, on billboards, newspapers, wherever. Every advertisement you see is trying to make you discontent with something. Okay? Aren't you hungry? Look at these sumptuous, over-magnified foods from Tim Hortons. Your life is really, it's incomplete unless you've seen this show or this movie. You should upgrade your home. In order to do that, give this realtor a call. Aren't you sick and tired of data overages? (laughs) Don't you want faster internet? Vote for this politician because current politicians just aren't cutting it. Your wardrobe is insufficient for today's fashion. So you should shop here to fix that. You need a better deodorant. (laughs) Well, actually, maybe some of you do. But Matthew Harmon concludes this way. He says, Indeed, the lust for material things that undermine contentment is a universal human temptation. We all feel that. It's everywhere. This lust for material things that undermines contentment. But then catch this. It says, At its heart, the issue is one of trust in God's sovereignty and goodness. Do you get what he's saying? Our constant discontentment exposes... A distrust of God. If we fully trusted God's sovereign goodness, we would be totally content. Now, there is a form of contentment that was actually highly valued in ancient Greco-Roman culture, which Paul was living in, especially amongst the philosophers known as cynics and stoics. If someone was content in that day, it would mean they were content with, quote, his own inner possibility and who thus becomes an independent man sufficient to himself and in need of none else. So, in other words, you were content if you felt the need for no one else but yourself. It was a good thing to be on your own, independent, self-sufficient. We, see, we hear similar sentiments today, don't we? Even in our materialistic society. All that you need is inside yourself. Be strong. Independent. Those are good things. You, you just have to, to self-actualize. Realize your own potential. It's, it's a bad thing to need others. Now, this self-sufficiency is often the world's version of contentment. But Paul's contentment isn't self-sufficiency. As we shall see, it's God's sufficiency. Paul wasn't independent or immune from need. He was dependent on God for his needs. So, how did Paul get there? How did he learn to be content no matter what? Because contentment doesn't happen naturally. No, it's, it's natural for our sinful hearts to be discontent. Just consider how even the littlest kids will scream at you or throw a tantrum when a perceived need of theirs isn't being met. Happens naturally. I mean, just take them to Toys R Us or walk down the, the candy aisle at Bulk Barn. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> Now, contentment is a learned thing. It's a character trait. It's a discipline. So how did Paul learn to be content? Well, he didn't sit in contentment school and learn it intellectually. No, he learned it experientially. By God-given circumstances. Look at what he says at the end of verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And Paul had a lot of different situations. From one extreme to the other. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now some of us think we've had a pretty up and down life. We got nothing on Paul. Okay? This was a guy who had a a pretty cushy upbringing as a respected religious leader, a religious elite of his day. And then he had this dramatic salvation experience where the risen Christ appeared to him in person. He was blinded and then healed and saved. I mean, talk about a high, right? But then that meant a new life situation for him. Suddenly he was a marked man. And people, even many of his former friends, were trying to kill him. Later, as he traveled the world, he saw multitudes of people come to Christ. He saw many churches planted and flourish. He made many new friends. He saw miracles, many of which happened at his own hands. I mean, Paul had to have one of the most successful ministries of all time. But on the other side of things... He was also thrown in prison a bunch of times. He was also beaten, lashed. He was stoned and left for dead. He was even shipwrecked three times, left adrift at sea. Mortal danger, poverty, hunger, pressure, stress. They were everyday concerns for Paul. I know how to be brought low. Well, yes, you certainly do, Paul. And I know what it means to abound. Yep. It was that too. I mean, in Philippi alone, where Paul's writing this letter to, he had experienced all of this in a nutshell there. He had gone from being housed in luxury in Lydia, a wealthy merchant's home there, to overnight, lying in stocks, being housed in a dirty stinky dank prison and then God freed him with a miraculous earthquake and a bunch of people got saved I mean talk about an emotional and physical roller coaster this was Paul's life most of us have have not gone through anything close to what Paul went through but If he could learn contentment through all that, shouldn't we be able to? Most of us have not known true poverty or hunger, though some of us have. Most of us have lived relatively comfy and luxurious lives, insulated, insured, Dennis Johnson says this, For many of us, the challenge is not to be content when we have nothing. After all, we have never had nothing. The challenge is to be content when we have more than we need, but less than we want. In case you wonder, well, do we really need to be, do we need to be impoverished to really learn this? I don't believe that's the case. Because Paul also abounded in plenty and abundance. Okay? He learned this. He learned contentment from his everyday experiences in both directions. We can too. So, as you are exposed to abundance or poverty and everything in between, are you learning what it means to be content? If you're content now, but you wouldn't be if you lost a few things, you're not really content. Or at least you don't know the secret, as he says, of having of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So, don't you want to know how to do this? I mean... Wouldn't this true contentment make your life better? I mean, to not feel the, the consuming and overwhelming hunger for more all the time. To, to be able to resist the relentless temptations of materialism. To be, a, to be totally ready to face whatever happens. In every season of life, you're prepared to be truly satisfied and happy with your life. You may be like, okay, I get it, right? It'd be great to be content. So what's the secret? I've left you hanging long enough. Let's initiate you into this secret, shall we? Here's what Paul is going to tell us. You're already in on this secret if you have Jesus. Okay? Here's how I put this point there is a secret to contentment in all circumstances. What is it? God's strengthening empowerment through Christ. Okay? The secret to contentment in all circumstances is God's empowerment of us, strengthening of us through Jesus. I get this secret from verse 13, one of the most well-known verses in all Scripture. And right after saying, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, it's implicitly obvious that the him there, Paul's talking about Jesus. So the, the secret of contentment. Is discovered in Jesus through Him. Jesus is the secret. Okay? Christ is enough. He is sufficient. Jesus is all we need. That's the secret. So, does this mean that many of us who are missing contentment are missing Jesus? Maybe. Or at least we are forgetting or overlooking or undervaluing him. Now, verse 13 is not only very well known, it's also one of the most misused Bible verses ever. We like to to violently rip this this catchy one-liner out of context ...and misapply it to our lives. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who hasn't seen this verse emblazoned across a poster... ...or a meme or a shirt? Right? We usually hear it in context of some difficult human achievement. For example... ...I did a Google image search of this verse. The first pictures of people you see. Okay? Okay? are of a guy rock climbing a steep cliff face, someone running hurdles on a track, a little boy dressed up as Superman, a bicyclist, a backpacker, someone flexing, (laughs) and, I kid you not, Tim Tebow. (laughs) Tim Tebow famously wrote Philippians 4.13 in the eye black under his eyes. This picture pops up. Now, it's a, it's a verse that we might tend to quote right before a sports event or maybe before singing a solo or some other thing that we're trying to do. I can win. I can perform. I can succeed. I can pass this exam. I can climb Mount Everest. I can be a professional ball player. I can go to the moon. I can do this. Because I have Jesus, and Jesus says I can. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, maybe. Maybe not. That, the point is, that is not the point of this verse at all. Philippians 4.13 is absolutely not a slogan to help us achieve our dreams in life. It is not a magical incantation. It is not a powerful pep talk. It is not a promise of victory. Jesus is not our genie in a bottle, or our rabbit's foot, or our cosmic vending machine. I mean, there are a lot of things I simply can't do because I am not exhaustively skilled or talented. I am not an astronaut, or a rocket physicist, or a champion pole vaulter. I have limits. I'm not Superman. I'm not all-powerful. Ultimately, I'm not God. So what is this verse saying then? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What does Paul mean by all things? Well, Remember what he just said. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So then, when he says, I can do all things, he's not referring to an ability to accomplish All things through Christ, he's referring to the ability to face all things through Christ with contentment. So whether you're as physically strong as Tim Tebow, or you're too weak to throw a football, you can have the spiritual strength to glorify God and live for Christ. There. So let's think about this. Okay? Brainstorm a bit with me. What are things that this verse would then be saying we can do through Christ? I can do all things. What are things we can do? I can grieve well when sorrow comes my way through Christ who strengthens me. I can give generously from my abundance through Christ who strengthens me. I can be jobless and okay with that through Christ who strengthens me. I can enjoy God's blessings without making them a god through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure people's scorn or mockery or hatred through Christ who strengthens me. I can be rich or poor, healthy or sick, loved or unloved through him who strengthens me. When everything goes my way, I can resist being corrupted by that through Christ. And when nothing goes my way, I can resist being crushed by that through Christ. Picture Paul. Picture him being yelled at by an angry mob. Being pummeled by stones. Lying face down in the dirt. Being whipped raw. Being nearly drowned. Being hunted by murderous assassins and then saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Matt Chandler says this. Philippians four thirteen is not about chasing your dreams following your passions, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, accomplishing anything you want with God's help. It is instead the testimony of those who have Christ and have found him supremely valuable, joyous and satisfying. In a life constantly marked by these extreme highs and lows, Paul has found the great constant security, the great centering hope, Jesus Christ himself. The secret is not more personal strength or resolve or religious activities or anything like that, the secret is Christ. Christ, the the one who did not cling to his heavenly riches and rights as God and blessings, but instead made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Lowering himself to death. Even death on a cross. For us. And it is through him that we find the strength we need to face each day. Do you realize that, really, Philippians 4.13 is even better than our cheap distortions make of it? I mean, what this verse means is that the all-powerful king creator of the universe who died and conquered death now lives inside of us by his spirit to empower us to live for him no matter what happens. That's some good news. He strengthens us. With far better strength than you get from lifting weights or taking steroids or drinking Gatorade, He gives us His own supernatural strength to sustain us when life is unsustainable. His strength to face trials or tragedies or pain or loss or failure or disappointment. Strength to fight sin, to resist the devil. It's strength to pray hard, to press on. And really, that's the strength we've needed all along. So the question then becomes, how do we actually do this? How do we access God's empowerment? How do we find Christ all-sufficient? Let's start with this. If you don't have Christ in the first place, you cannot access his power. When you have to believe in him, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and trust him to save you, and that's when his spirit comes into us, and when we have the Holy Spirit, that's when we possess everything we truly need. 2 Peter 1 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and goodness. Next, I'll say this. Contentment is really an attitude of our hearts, it's a mental state or a belief. So putting this into practice can be pretty invisible. Okay? It happens inside of us, in our minds. We have to change, we have to alter how we think, what we believe, how we view things. So, when you sense discontentment rising in your heart, and I I don't know about you, but with me this happens pretty much daily. When you sense discontentment rising in your hearts. We need to address those situations differently. We need to stop and think. Okay, Where is this desire coming from? What am I dissatisfied with? Where's, where's the root? And then, is this something in which I should find my fulfillment in Christ? It probably is. If you want more money you probably aren't considering how rich you are in Christ. If you want more comfort, you likely aren't thinking of eternal comforts right then. If you're you're lonely, you probably aren't dwelling on the intimate friendship of Christ. If you want more security, or love, or peace, or pleasure, or joy, all of these things are ultimately found in Christ. and in a far greater measure than we'll ever find in the things of earth. So think on Him. Meditate on Him. Call Him to mind. Go to Scripture. Pray. Talk about these things with others. Whatever you have to do in the moment to get your mind fixed on Him. You can also ask this question. Am I putting my hope in something other than God right now? And do I need to repent and reaffirm my trust in Him? If so, do it. Okay. And The secret to doing this in all circumstances is really to get our eyes off our circumstances. Our contentment needs to be entirely independent from our situations in life, or else it's not true contentment. And that smoke screen will blow away one day. Let's get our eyes onto God. In the moment, do whatever we need to to fix our hearts, fix our minds on Him. And the wonderful result is a peace, the joy, and the gratitude that will permeate your life. For Paul. This contentment led him, as verse 10 says, to rejoice greatly in others' concern for him. But also, if he, back in chapter 2, he had said that he rejoiced in potentially being poured out to death. See his life again? Whatever situation, in any and every circumstance, the secret to contentment, in all circumstances, is God's strengthening empowerment through Christ, which should lead to joy, joyful gratitude at all times. Our contentment in Christ should lead to joyful gratitude at all times. Now, Paul might not say thank you here, but he's still obviously grateful as he rejoices. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, but now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now, notice... The Philippians' concern for Paul caused him to rejoice not in them, but in the Lord. Again, his happiness doesn't rest on his circumstances, but on Christ. I rejoiced in the Lord. Therefore, no matter what circumstances happened to Paul, he could rejoice in the Lord always. The secret to contentment. The secret to joy, the secret to being happy and satisfied in life can only be found in Jesus. And when we understand, when we truly understand what we have in him, our joy and our gratitude should be unquenchable. So, are you content today? Are you joyful? Are you grateful? If not, have you surveyed the good news of Jesus Christ lately? Meditating on what his sacrifice means for you. Have you, have you stopped and, and stared at Jesus on the cross for you? The ramifications of that. Have you remembered your sin and your guilt and your shame which once consumed you has now been washed away completely by the blood of Christ? Have you looked intently at the grave which was once occupied but is now empty. Have you remembered that your citizenship, your security, your identity is in heaven? From which we await a Savior who will transform our broken and dying and hurting bodies to be like His glorious body in perfect joy for all eternity we close, we're going to take a few minutes to stare at Jesus together. To meditate on him as we gather around his table. I'll leave you with this, though. Augustine famously prayed, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. By implication, when our hearts do find rest in him, restlessness ceases. And that's when we can be truly content. Would you pray with me? God, once again, you know our hearts. You know our minds. You know our objections. You know where we're fighting you where we want the things of this earth, where we want more, where we're struggling to make you all sufficient. God, help us there. Even in this moment, speak your truth and your love and your peace to us. Help us to find our rest in you. everything we need. May we treasure you above everything else. Jesus,